Hello, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. Annie, what's up? Oh, you know, just recording our podcast. You've like been very busy. Your schedule's gotten more and more packed, and I just feel like lucky to even get this hour with you. I know. I don't know whether to be mad at me or to be mad at Ben Gorham for um, <laughs> not getting our <laughs> Byredo interview this week. But you know what? Congratulations, Ben and Co. is Maya because it is Byredo launch week. For their makeup collection. For their makeup collection, exactly. Which you're wearing their mascara right now? Yeah. What do you think? I think it looks nice. I mean, it's hard to tell on Zoom, but what do you? <laughs> how, how was the experience of using it? Yes. Let me tell you what I like and what I don't like about this new product. So I guess we'll jump right into product of the week. Or do yeah, I have to choose another one later? No, let's put, to quote Missy Elliott, let's put our thing on, flip it and reverse it. You mean, there through? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it comes, do you see it? I'm holding it. Yeah. It looks like a dildo. No, it doesn't. Okay, it looks so like it's one a, of those little like pocket like vibrators. Okay, so the whole makeup collection for the gal on the go. <laughs> the whole makeup collection is all custom tooled packaging with um, it's like very heavy. It's nice, and this is a red chunky cylinder. But then the top part where the wand connects is tapers and curves to a like witch's finger point. Would you say? Mm-hmm. Okay, so take it out. The brush is so small. It's a like 3D printed brush, not a like fiber brush. And it is short. It's maybe three fourths of an inch long, really short, chunky, spiky bristles. And the formula itself is quite, I would give it mm, on the thin to thick scale from one to 10. One being like Maybelline Feather Light, 10 being, what's the Dior one? The show something. Dior show mascara. Dior show. One word. Yeah. Sorry. I thought there was another adjective in there, but it's probably a seven in thickness. And it's so, I do love how tiny and compact the brush is because it's really easy to get all your hairs and it makes your eyelashes look very hairy, if that's, which is not a term I've ever like thought of to use with my eyelashes but it really it, is it fragranced good. yes yes cool. it is i the in fact i think the only product that i couldn't pick up a scent on was the eyeliner interesting yeah the only thing that annoyed me about it was the shape of the freaking tip because when you hold it it's not it like, ergonomic yeah it flopped around in my hand it's like it's not equally weighted and then the only time in my life where i've gotten mascara on my actual skin outside of my eyelash has been using this this morning. So, well, let's take it up with Ben when we talk to him next week. Let's bring him to the red. Yeah. To the, we've we've got some healing to do at the red table, (laughs) the red table. So my product of the week, I'm just going to give you a visual. (laughs) (laughs) Nick just picked up a jug of water from out of frame with a tiny little, like two inch (laughs) baby chunk straw at the top that he's like gingerly sipping out of. (laughs) So I bought this. It is a uh, 3,800 milliliter water bottle, which did not have like anything to show its scale on Amazon. It is, I'd say like twice the size of my head, 
It truly and, looks like a prop from like the latest Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland movie. Like it's too big. <laughs> yeah, it makes me look like I'm like a tiny person. <laughs> like um, he drank the tiny potion. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I got it is because I am trying to up my water intake and really what you know you should aim for or one should aim for is around 4 liters of water a day, 3 to 4 liters, and that's a ton a ton of water. So in order to help me with that challenge that I've given myself, I bought this jug so I could measure it. And on one side, it has different sort of affirmations like good morning, hydrate yourself, remember your goal, keep chugging, feeling awesome, don't give up. Oh, I don't almost like that. finished. I don't like you this, did like, it. I don't like voicey copy on products. On the other side, it just has like the number of milliliters or ounces you're drinking. I want to, I want, I'm going to do good on this promise I made to myself. So I'm just using it to measure my water intake. I tried to do it yesterday and it's 10, 10 ounce glasses of water a day. And that's a lot of fucking water. That's more than it used to be in the 90s. It was only, wasn't yeah, well, it only like four, eight ounce glasses or something? Things have changed. It is now over We've like a hundred. Yeah, 100 ounces of water. I'm waiting to see like how my skin looks amazing, how my uh, physical fitness has improved. Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. What color is your urine today? Uh, well, it's supposed to be basically clear. Uh, is that healthy? I thought it was supposed to have like a tinge of yellow just to I show mean, that. I mean, it might have a, it has like a slight tinge of yellow. So, and I also like for all those now probably saying to themselves, Wait, I thought you can drink too much water and get an electrolyte imbalance. That can only happen if you literally drank three liters of water at one time. Drinking three three to four liters of water across a span of eight hours is not going to imbalance your electrolytes. Um, what we can do is we'll post um, some Pantone chips to our Instagram just to show like the healthy range of yellow. Uh, for your urine. And we'll also post for. a picture of me... With my new water bottle. Actually, Annie's going to take it right now. It's too big. It doesn't even fit in my... <laughs> it doesn't fit in Let me, let me do the wide angle. <laughs> <laughs> you look great. Anyway, it's like $20 on Amazon. And anyone else who wants to join me in this hydration journey is welcome to purchase it. And we can cheers our... 3,800 milliliter bottles to health. To health. Shall we get into top stories? Let's do it. So we would be remiss as beauty reporters if we did not mention a little golden nugget that was included in the New York Times expose on Trump's tax returns, or rather his like uh, deductions, which included, we're not exactly and nor entirely sure of the time period, but it was when he was on The Apprentice, he apparently uh, deducted over $70,000 for hairstyling, which um, we have a few questions. I can't, I'm not siding with Trump here, but like $70,000 for hair over the course of filming The Apprentice seems not outrageous. I'm more okay, like fine, was- but if you're like you know Misha Barton circa the OC with like beachy waves and highlights, I understand seventy thousand dollars. However, if you're Trump, who looks like he does it in a vegetable fryer, 
I don't understand where the $70,000 is going. Like, what is the style? What's the styling? I mean, there's a lot going on. So something's being created. That's not like growing out of his head like that. So something's happening there. There's work going into it. True. And as the Countess says, money can't buy you class. No, it can't. Speaking of politics, yesterday, which was Wednesday, a new brand launched called Biden Beauty, which to me just gets a big sigh. It was this sort of cutesy, tongue-in-cheek PR stunt, we think, created by a as yet unnamed beauty insider in order to support the Democratic candidate for presidency, Joe Biden. They created a beauty blender like in blue. They created some merch. Um, It's all under Biden Beauty on Instagram. According to a press release, Biden Beauty says they had the quote unquote blessing from the Kamala Harris and Joe Biden campaign, which I don't know if really helps us or hurts us because it sort of seems pretty silly for something that you know, I think that to- I think the fact that the creators of this brand or initiative are not revealing who they are says everything that we can about the execution here. I, and also, doesn't the logo look like the Ellen Show logo to you? Yeah, the branding you want better for for Biden. So there, I guess the idea is like these forty six dollar hoodies, these twenty dollar makeup blending sponges stickers, pins, and totes. Proceeds will go to funding... The DNC. The DNC's campaign efforts. I think, you know, the most important thing for people to do is vote, volunteer to be poll workers, and uh, maybe just donate money directly to the campaign instead of buying these products that you probably don't need. A little indie conglomerate called Estee Lauder is paying $128,000 to NASA, yes, outer space NASA, to complete a photo shoot on the International Space Station. This is according to Bloomberg, who reported that Estee Lauder has basically contracted NASA to fly 10 bottles of advanced night repair, which is their cash cow and sort of iconic Estee Lauder product, to the space station for an exclusive photo shoot. And then the brand plans to auction off one bottle uh, with the proceeds going to charity upon its safe landing back on earth. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most like irrelevant out of touch marketing stunt I've like seen in the beauty industry in quite some time. (laughs) They, they, Estee Lauder has said in the press release that they are the first beauty brand to go into space. I feel like some astronauts snuck a chapstick up there. It has. There's not a lot of humidity in space. I mean, true. Um, right? However, they can't find water anywhere. I think it's like strange because it's not like they innovated on the formula recently. Essentially, it's just a hyaluronic acid serum, and then they're putting it into space, and they're saying like, like it's innovative. It's in space. It'll hopefully be a cool Instagram picture, but that 128k is a lot for an Instagram. I think Kylie charges more. Oh my god, that's true. But did you? Can I raise a topic? Have you seen that in Los Angeles, there is a (laughs) photo studio that you can rent that looks like a private jet (laughs) and influencers are renting like by the hour or whatever, this uh, studio to take pictures in to look like they're flying in a private jet. That's so bleak. It's, uh, It's in Los Angeles, of course. Where else would it be? It's called fdphotostudio.com. 
And it is the first in Los Angeles. It's a rental photo studio with unique private jet set and artificial window lights. And you can rent it for $34.99 an hour. And that's all I have on that. But just, uh, I feel like they could have just maybe recreated the space station and taken a picture for a lot less money than $128,000. Well, some people think that <laughs> it was all done on a set, so maybe it, maybe it's still around. <laughs> True. <laughs> In happier news, Ann Arbor, Michigan, has decriminalized magic mushrooms, and specifically the active ingredient, Annie, which is called... Psilocybin. Psilocybin. In a unanimous vote, the I would imagine the city government declared that it is the, quote, city's lowest enforcement policy... And in a resolution, it defined any psychedelic plants, actually, as plants and fungi that contain indolamines, tryptamines, and phenylamines that, quote, can benefit psychological and physical wellness, support and enhance religious and spiritual practices, and can reestablish humans' inalienable and direct relationship to nature. And so this move applies also to ayahuasca, ibogaine, mescaline, peyote, psilocybin mushrooms, and other substances with hallucinogenic properties that are considered illegal under state and federal law. I love that. I love that. I think get people me, should Get me be, on a plane to Ann Arbor. I think people should be closer to nature. I think it will solve a lot of the world's problems. I, for one, am getting a Subaru. I'm happy for you. So I can drive out into nature. Totally. I'm, I'm all for that. And also, it's nice to have, like, to feel that you're not locked in New York. When, do you want to hear a funny story from my youth? Yep. My dad did a campaign for, I think it was Subaru. And in the commercial spot, they had a kid and the kid's dad riding in a Subaru with a little bunny rabbit. And they're driving out to the woods and the kid like releases the bunny <laughs> into nature. And PETA, That's so cute. the PETA and animal rights activists were outraged. Because you, know, you, they can't, were- you can't take a captive like... Bunny oh, from like a domesticated bunny, <laughs> and like you're basically like just sending it out to the slaughter. For, yeah, for the hawks to swoop down. Oh God! I think that was my first taste of like you know internet culture backlash, and got to be careful, you know. Speaking of internet culture backlash, I love these transitions. There was an article in the Beauty Independent, which is a publication, a, rel- a relatively new publication actually. That's basically a trade, a beauty trade for indie brands was talking about how essentially like the proliferation of different skincare products has sensitized uh, all of our skin. And, you know, not only are terms like clean and green and sensitive, they don't have an official meeting, but the more actives you use and products you use on your face, like basically the more sensitive people's skin has gotten and thus the more people think they have sensitive skin and are looking for products, you know, made for sensitive skin. We're making our skin more sensitive, and then therefore we're like going out and seeking products for sensitive skin. Exactly. Got it. So all these acids and things that we're throwing on are we're probably doing too too much. We're going overboard, and we've sensitized our skin to the point that we now are dying for sensitive skin products. I reached out to a friend who is very well versed in the cosmetic formulation 
industry. And she, and I asked her basically, like, what's the deal with sensitive skin as a label on a beauty product? And she said, quote, when we send samples out for testing, the labs recruit people who self-profess as having sensitive skin. So first of all, it's like people who are getting tested for the designation of sensitive skin are people who say they have sensitive skin. Which is basically a lot of people. Typically, 50% of the panel size are self-professed sensitive skin subjects. A test can also be requested with only, quote, sensitive skin subjects if a sponsor wants to make a sensitive skin claim. But you are right in that there's no clear industry term, regulatory range of parameters, or tests that qualify someone as having sensitive skin. It's totally subjective. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, even... Labeling something as sensitive skin is based on a study done on people who say they have sensitive skin. It's all subjective. So people that have like truly severe sensitivities, like, you know, if they have psoriasis or eczema, things like that, that are more debilitating, just looking for a sensitive skin safe or like made for sensitive skin claim on the packaging is not going to be enough. I think there are organizations like the National (laughs) Eczema League. (laughs) I just made that one up. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there's there are legit organizations that brands, I know, like Userin and more like clinical brands tend to go after rather the than The National just, like, Eczema slept. Association. There you go. Yeah, look for that if you have true skin issues. Don't just like rely on the sensitive label. So last story this week, which pertains to one of our reader questions we got around the future of retail, um, especially during COVID. Sephora has partnered with Instacart for same-day delivery service on, you know, cosmetics products that you can get at Sephora. It's beginning in California and Canada, but I'm sure if it's successful, it will expand into other regions. So basically, I mean, what we were talking about last night was that this seems to us to be sort of like a challenge to Ulta, Sephora's biggest competitor, who has freestanding stores and they haven't been as negatively affected by the closure of malls and people's hesitation to go into mall spaces because they, you know, you can just go into a store, an Ulta store like you would a grocery store. And so by making it accessible in the same day, people are, you know, people want that instant gratification and you know sephora is hoping to sort of bring the store to them if people aren't going to come into their stores they want to instacart it to their house what do you think people need at sephora immediately i'd say skincare like if you ran out of skincare and you didn't have any more moisturizer like that would be that'd be an instacart situation i think that we're a little too uh we're a little too needy as humans I think I'm you can wait a day needy. for your moisturizer. And let's get real. A lot of these people have eight different moisturizers <laughs> that they're cycling through. So they should never be in a situation to where they're in desperate need of. Um, I know, but sometimes you just like to push it right to the edge, you know? Like I do that sometimes with like my different supplements I take. I'm like, I could order this today, but you know what? I'm going to wait till tomorrow. And then I'm like, I'm going to wait till tomorrow. And then all of a sudden I'm like scrambling to get my antidepressant. Well, that sounds like a whole another issue. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. So speaking of depression, should we get into our interview segment? (laughs) It is not. It's actually, well, it is kind of depressing. We actually spoke to your friend, a guy named Lucas, who runs product at a company called Doris Dev, which has offices in Hong Kong and in New York. And I mean, you you explained like what Doris Dev is. It's a really interesting agency that basically 
creates products for brands? Exactly. They bring physical products to life. So I think their specialty is not so much like in the personal care space, like it's not so much the goop that goes inside, although I do think that they can do that. But they're really like product engineers. Some of them come from like toy development backgrounds. They are like industrial designers. So they make the componentry, they source the componentry to make the thing that you hold that holds the goo inside. They've done baby strollers. They've done humidifiers. They've done bowls made of silicone that are easy to hold in one hand while you like guzzle a magic spoon with the other. And yeah, they basically also do like supply chain. And like you said, they have an office based in Hong Kong. So they have really close relationships with all the biggest and best like suppliers and factories all across like China where everything is made. And Lucas's background is in engineering. So he is really on the side of, okay, a client wants to make X. How do we engineer it? How do we design it to be as, you know, easy to use as possible, as intuitive, as, you know, clean and sophisticated looking, but also, and more and more importantly, sustainable. So we talked to him about sort of the state of sustainability in consumer goods and in packaging. And unfortunately, how it too often comes down to a lesser of two evils kind of decision when it comes to packaging choices. So here's our chat with Lucas. So we are gathered here today to talk about packaging and material use and operations and everything that goes into making these like physical products that make up the beauty industry. And Doris Dev, why don't you tell us like what Doris Dev is? Yeah, so I'm a partner at Doris Dev. I'm head of product. And Doris Dev is a product design and development firm. What we are is a team of people who have built a lot of products. We're split between New York and Hong Kong. And we help startups build their products. So that ranges from cookware to beauty packaging to connected home devices. The team originally started as an IoT team that was building What's IoT? smart home Internet of Things. This was probably five years ago where everything had to be connected to the Internet. So think of Dropcam or like Ring or every... So it's like, a, it's like a combination of like software and hardware? Correct. Yeah, it was like your phone had to speak to your doorknob always. Or for us, we were developing products like a connected AC unit or a connected egg tray. Some products that should never be connected to the internet. What does the connected egg tray tell you about the eggs or about you or or whatever? <laughs> uh, it tells you if, if you're at the store and you don't want to risk spending an extra $3 or $5 on a dozen eggs, you can check your phone and see if you have eggs in your fridge. Did the founders so, go to Harvard Business School? Uh, this was a Quirky product. There was a startup called Quirky. It raised $200 million. Oh, right. Where you, like, they would, like, people would like submit their inventions and then they would make them and give you a percentage of the cut, right? Exactly. This product was funded by GE, the people who invented the light bulb wow. and build jet engines. Yeah. Uh, and that's how the company spent their money. They were like, next stop, eggs. They should have, exactly. they should have, I mean, Nick, you're like their core customer. You love to talk about getting your protein and Yeah, no, but I don't think I need that smart egg device. Anyway, yeah. so you guys are basically solving, solving the world's problems 
one direct consumer product at a time at the moment. Awesome. And we work with a ton of fun brands from the pattern brand team, which is equal parts and open spaces to magic spoon where we make their bowls and their fun <laughs> tchotchke items to blue land where we make their sprayers, pumps and a bunch of their other products to great Jones. We designed and built that product. And you we guys get to do work on a lot of stuff by humankind. Who's a great brand that's doing a lot of innovative stuff on the sustainability side, which is kind of like in theme with what we wanted to talk about today. We've been so in the beauty industry in particular, which makes up at least a percentage of your client base, there's a ton of holiday collections coming out right now. And so it's basically like mini versions of their full size products for the most part. And then some like new limited edition products. So packaging is like a huge part of that. And what I learned from collaborating with Doris Dev on projects is that packaging even when you shrink it down, the componentry is still a like super, it makes up most of the cost of the beauty product. It's more expensive than the gunk that's inside. And B, it uses almost just as much materials for a small, like say travel or trial size component as a full size, you know, beauty product. And basically, are we, are we fucked? Are we like using too much to like, I know like pumps right now are in short supply. Like what, can you tell us about the current state of things and from your perspective as somebody who's like making this all happen on the operation side? Yeah. I mean, the world of pumps is very interesting for some, I never thought I'd be saying that. Um, <laughs> but this is one of the first times in my career where we're really seeing just like capacity, like we're factories are producing at capacity and there's just a shortage of pumps and sprayers. And when you say when you say pumps and sprayers, what what makes a pump? What makes a sprayer? So think about uh, Windex bottle sprayer or a lotion pump, things like that. It's a plastic top with a spring and like a ball bearing, some like minor components in it. They're oftentimes extremely cheap for what they are. Because they're, they're like a feat of engineering. They're like... <laughs> oh, truly. When you know, we worked on our first pump a few years ago, and I remember seeing the cost and going, oh my God, that's the cheapest fucking thing I've ever seen. Like that the product is probably 15 or 20 parts, and they cost less than 20 cents. And mm-hmm. I've never seen a product like that before. It's, and they're assembled by hand. Wow. And they're just ubiquitous. Like we use these all the time and like all of our beauty products, a lot of our like home products. But I think the most kind of upsetting realization I had also with that you delivered to me is that they're not recyclable at all. They're very, very hard to recycle. Why is that? They're a mix of plastic. So the outer shrouds or the outer cosmetic components that you would see on, on a pump are generally polypropylene. And the inside is generally HDPE. And they're two different uh, plastics. You have to separate them in order to recycle them. And then in addition to that, you have oftentimes metal and glass parts inside the pumps. And in order to comfortably recycle those, you would have to separate all the parts, make sure that in a recycling facility, they know which plastics are correspond to each one of those parts, sort them properly, and then which absolutely no one is doing any of that. So basically pumps are not no recyclable. Doing. Correct. And Han will added another thing in parts below two inches don't get recycled because they're just too small. Oh, I didn't know that. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. 
I've been trying to save the planet by like taking my little toothpaste cup and putting it in my recycling and like rinsing it off. Is that that's not doing anything? I mean, most just it's because there's so little plastic in there. It's the same amount of work to sort that tiny piece of plastic out, but there's like little gain for it. So most recyclers just say it's below two inches, like it's trash. Is it also true? I mean, you're an expert on product. I get I get that, not recycling, but is it true that China is no longer buying uh, used plastics? So like recycling is just going into landfills anyway? It's very, very difficult to import recycling materials into China now. Some people are doing it. I know Apple's still able to do it, but it's very, very hard. A lot of the stuff has to be processed inside the US and then exported as like ready to use plastic into China. So a lot of recycling is just going to the trash now because it doesn't make sense. Because we, we don't have the infrastructure in the States to like process all of the plastic to make it into recycled plastic. The infrastructure, unfortunately, is really cheap labor to hand sort a lot of this. And our recycling system is a patchwork of local recycling facilities. It's, there's nothing standardized. Wow. It's scary. Yeah. So then you have that as sort of like your business challenge with a brand like by Humankind, which I know has a lot of recycled and or recyclable components. Like how do you approach creating packaging for like that kind of a brand? So I think every brand has their own view of sustainability and how we define sustainability for that brand. And a lot of that depends on the product life cycle. So when we think about this, I think we come from it from a few directions. One of them is we try and reduce as much plastic as possible. So packaging will get, it's almost all paper or corrugate, and you don't see those plastic bags or films or plastic trays that you see in a lot of like toys where you're like, you buy this big box and it's the small toy filled with this big plastic tray. So we don't use those. And then from the actual components that a consumer uses, we try and use as little plastic as possible in that. We try and make the product as small as possible. And then we try and enable the consumer to reuse that part as long as possible. So it's really the side of reducing and reusing. What about brands? I see a lot of messaging around like, oh, this contains like X percent of like recycled post-consumer plastics in um, our packaging. Is that solving global issues or is that I know that there's there's a limit, right, to what recycled plastic material can be used for. In consumer products, it's hard to be using post-consumer plastic. So oftentimes you'll see brands say, oh, we're using 50% recycled plastic. Mm -hmm. The definition of recycled is not very strong. So for instance, recycled may mean post-industrial, which means that let's say you made a batch of parts and they were bad, they were the wrong color or something like that. They could grind that material up and reuse it and call that recycled plastic. That's not post-consumer. They're not having to sort through the trash and find you know exactly the right type of plastic and melt it down again. They're mm-hmm. reusing stuff that never left their factory and calling yeah, it Yeah, which a lot of recycled. people don't realize, even smaller brands, like I've seen firsthand, like the color can be slightly off shade from what they were going for. And then suddenly these huge, huge quantities, like what's an average MOQ for or minimum order quantity for like a cap in an order? What, like how many pieces? I mean, 50 to 100,000 pieces for like a tiny, tiny part. So you have 50 to 100,000 pieces of this slightly off shade component that then 
you know, well, you're saying like some of it gets reused, which is good. But yeah, I think people, consumers, I didn't realize as a consumer until I started like working on product that like that's pretty common in the industry. Yeah, there's a lot of waste. Ugh. Well, so then, okay, that's this is all the bad news. <laughs> that like sustainability <laughs> that's the theme is a mar- of, that's the theme of existence right now. <laughs> sustainability <laughs> sustainability is a marketing concept, much like the other words in in beauty. But like, are there any bright lights or hopes that we can h- hang on to? Um, <laughs> Make us feel better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people care, and that's important. I think it's really important for a a lot of brands, especially to understand how their products are used. It's really easy to say we're sustainable. It's really hard to prove it. So there are a lot of cool companies doing this. Cradle to Cradle is one that's certifying brands and helping them define their like material usage and their health. And that's making sure that these brands are using plastics and materials that are not bad for the environment. So a lot of plastics actually have heavy metals in them, like PET, normal water bottles, actually have a heavy metal in them similar to lead. So what is that? That'll like leach into whatever you put inside of it? Is that the idea or what? That's part of the concern. It's also just that like you're promoting a heavy metal being used in products and it's eventually not going to end up in that product. It's going to end up in the environment. So they're a really great resource. Carbon Neutral as well is another great resource where they're helping people track their carbon usage associated with their product in their whole company and then offsetting it um, and helping them reduce that. And then there's a huge range of new types of resins that are coming on the market and resins are plastics that are bio-based. So they're made with corn-based, they're ethanol-based, which is really, really interesting. The question there then comes, you can't recycle it. You can hope to compost it, but it comes into question, what is the whole life cycle of these new products and these new resins? And there's been a lot of talk I know about like compostable or biodegradable plastics that they've done, I mean, more sort of armchair studies on, but like they don't actually degrade for decades. Yeah. And they end up in the wrong places. Mm. Right. Is there a hierarchy of materials? So like if if you were going to try to avoid plastic because it's problematic, even you know in its most recycled form, what other materials should you look for in products if you're trying to be a thoughtful consumer and you care about sustainability? First, I would say don't buy the product if you don't need it, unfortunately. Uh, like reduce is the best thing that we can do from a sustainability standpoint. From a material standpoint, it's looking at materials that can be easily recycled. Thinking about aluminum and glass are really, really like recyclable. But there are downsides to those materials. If you're buying a product that you would have purchased in plastic originally, but you're now buying it in, in glass, for instance, that glass has a lot of embodied carbon and embodied energy. So it actually took a lot more energy to make glass than it may have taken to make plastic. And to ship it, right? Isn't there and like... to ship it, it's way heavier. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's really hard. So a lot of it is how you define the product life cycle. If this is a durable product, it can be made out of glass and aluminum. And if it lasts longer and you're able to get more life out of that product, that's great. That's like really, really important. But if you're replacing a part that was plastic that may have 
been re- recyclable and you're just replacing it with glass and it's a disposable product, you may not be making an impact on a macro scale. Mm-hmm. You're reducing the amount of plastic being used, that's for sure, but you may have a larger carbon footprint because of it. What about paper? Paper overall is way better than a lot than most materials. It's not heavily processed. It's effectively ground up trees and wood pulp and it's effectively carbon neutral. You're chopping down a tree and you're planting a new one. What is everyone is or like most recycled with recycled paper. So with for instance uh paper that's coming from a sustainable forestry, what they're doing is they're planting trees, they're chopping down that tree, they're planting a new one. Does that work? Because at the rate that they're chopping trees down, are the trees truly growing back at the same rate? Uh, a lot of them now are farm trees. So okay. these are, are lots that, from a biodiversity standpoint, it's, it great. can be hard. It's not great because they're planting mass lots of trees that and are just Farming has be. its own carbon issues. Yes. But what's nice about paper is you're taking CO2 that was once in the air. It's being embodied into this tree that's tons of carbon that gets chopped down. It gets processed. There's a lot of water usage, unfortunately, with paper. Mm-hmm. But then it gets turned into paper and it's relatively easily recycled. Most corrugate is post-consumer recycled just because it's really easy to recycle. And corrugate is like what we're all getting delivered every day when we get our like Amazon exactly. and like online purchases. You know, how significant is a player like Amazon's actions in this space in terms of like being able to change the future of packaging and sustainability? So now I know like they have paper tape versus plastic tape, things like that. How important is that? I mean, the scale at which Amazon and Apple and those companies live in is just astonishing. They have the ability to build industries for sustainable products real, really, really quickly. So for instance, they changed all of their bags from, I don't know if you'd like you, when you used to go to the store, you used to get like those like drawstring bags. Yeah. Uh, the and Apple store. I think, yeah, I think the I Apple remember. Store. Yeah. Yeah. They changed those bags from like those plastic ones that like were a drawstring that you could like wear as a backpack almost. Um, <laughs> so and they changed them to, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, to a paper bag and they started using paper handles. So they actually like found this company uh, or helped the innovate with this company, this, this woven paper handle. So you could recycle this whole bag. You didn't have to detach the handles. And as a result, they created in an industry entirely around these paper handles, this woven paper. And so now that like other companies can go and buy that material because there's such demand for it now. So you you said like one key word, which I think is also related to what you guys do, which is innovate. If you're a tiny brand or like a bootstrapped entrepreneur, you know, the this innovate sounds really fun and sexy, but it's can be incredibly, incredibly expensive. Because that means oftentimes like creating your own form or casting a piece in some really intense metal to like be able to stamp into whatever thing you're you're making all of which is to say like if you're a tiny brand or or just a person trying to make a thing and you want to do it in the right way like how do you go about that a good example of this is if we wanted to say hey we wanted to be a plastic free found a company we wanted to be plastic free instead of plastic tubes for our 
goop, we wanted to use like aluminum tubes. Mm-hmm. That's something that's relatively easy. It sounds relatively easy to start. Aluminum tubes, you see them in a lot of medicines and ointments and stuff like that. Aren't they coated in plastic on the inside though? They are coated with an epoxy, which is not great. But by weight, it's there's not a, a ton of plastic in it compared to a true plastic tube. So from a just, hey, I, I want to a quick turnkey, I want an, an aluminum tube instead of a plastic tube. That's relatively easy. You can find there are a lot of suppliers that make them. And they're cheap, right? They're relatively cheap. They're not necessarily as cheap as the plastic tubes. They're probably about double the cost. But one thing that starts to happen is it's really hard to actually fill them. Filling aluminum tubes is different than filling plastic tubes. Most of the cosmetic industry and most of the filling industry is built around filling these plastic tubes that you just melt together. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. aluminum tubes, you can't melt together. You actually have to fold them. And they have these very, very special folding machines. And that creates a huge hurdle to find a filler that can actually do that. I would assume then that filling is also more expensive. Exactly. It's more expensive. It takes a lot longer. And there are some amazing videos of watching these machines go. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I have some on my phone because you've sent them on my WhatsApp. and They (laughs) automatically download to my photo stream, which is always a fun surprise. Um, Also, yeah, people, something I learned too, which is fascinating is that, yeah, cost and, and machinery, right? It's like if there's a ton of limitations in the industry with all of these different like partners even trying to do the right thing. It's like you're limited because this factory doesn't have this like $30,000 piece of machinery that can do the type of fold that you need for your particular product, right? And then so one option is to take your goop, take your tubes and send them off somewhere else to get like crimped and that creates waste in of itself. So it's like I can be very hard on like brands and whatever because of some of on the surface look at their packaging choices, but I also, you know, now that I'm more on the inside, like can see a lot of the trade-offs where it's like you kind of have to choose a lesser of two evils if you want to get this product made. Anyway, that wasn't a question. I'm just trying to prove how um, savvy (laughs) I am in your (laughs) expertise. It's really hard. It's really hard to make uh, an impact at such a small business. I think for companies that are starting who really want to make a big impact, a lot of it comes down to understanding that you're probably not going to make a big impact now and you you may actually be negatively affecting. It may actually be worse to go about making something in a certain material now at such a small scale because this, the supply chain is not streamlined yet. But the goal is to get large enough that you streamline this whole industry. And as a result, you get huge economies of scale and you're actually able to greatly improve the environment and your product because of that. So if consumers want to like get mad at a brand for sustainability, go after the big guys that can have the money to invest in really like overhauling supply chain and investing in new materials. Yeah, or support these small brands and enable them to scale. I like that. Because it's very, very difficult for these big brands to change. They have built these huge industries and these huge supply chains that take 18 months, 24 months to change a color on a product, mm-hmm. let alone change the material or change the filling method. It sounds too like part of the sustainability, like from a small business or like a marketing perspective, 
is storytelling, right? So it's saying like, okay, I made, you know, make being conscious about your, the decisions you're making. I decided to make this in a plastic bottle because the same factory can fill it. That makes the bottle. I'm making this up, but like whatever the sort of reasoning you have is, and then explaining that to the consumer. And that's sort of like your, your stance on sustainability, right? Like rather than, you know, trying to get ahead of yourself when you don't have the scale to really like deliver on a sustainability promise. Yeah, I think the reality is like with everything, the it's just nuanced and it's very hard to message nuance to people. It's way easier to say plastic free than, well, it's plastic free, but it may be a little worse in this area, but make sure to use it as long as possible. And like, please don't throw this away if it's not done, like keep using it. It's very difficult to say that to a, a I was re- I was uh, reading this website for diaper. It was a diaper startup called Coterie, and they have a diaper that is made with both sort of bamboo parts, but also some plastic. And they did a pretty elegant job of explaining, like, listen, like the reusable, you know, cloth diaper industry is problematic because of like the level of commercial detergents and the transportation and all these sort of things. We've like made a very calculated decision about sort of where we can be a little bit more sustainable and where like there's just room for improvement and like kind of laying it bare on their website was I think to me as a potential consumer, like a really a good way of doing that. Can you make diapers? We have not made diapers. But you yeah. made a you made a stroller. We have made a stroller. Yeah, and we make a high chair for a brand called Lolo. Do you guys do all of the the if, if there's like an FDA or some sort of governing body that approves these products? Do you guys handle that for the brands that you work with? Yeah, we do. So like we for work like a, a stroller. I assume has to have a lot of safety testing. It does. Yeah. So most products, the giant water bottle you're drinking right now. I know. Uh, I, know I know. I can't <laughs> take myself seriously when I'm like. <sighs> <laughs> It looks like you're like on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, I know. You look like a baby. (laughs) (laughs) You do. Also, like straw. There's no way to look cool when you're drinking out of a straw. Like (laughs) those dorky little short straws. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, you need to engineer a better. Oh, yeah. I have an idea for you. A big water bottle that tracks how much you're drinking and makes sure that you get the (laughs) adequate four liters of water a day. Um, and then a have, catheter. Have you heard about Lark? No, what's Lark? <laughs> oh, oh uh, Lark is the water bottle that purifies or like cleans itself, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think they may have something about like making you drink more water or something like that. But um, you, you know what Doris Dev should money. invent? They should invent, you know how like those IV like startups are really in where they'll come to your house and they'll give you like, you should do like, oh, Camel Pack. IV situation so people can just walk around all day getting all the you know nutrients but you're laughing but you're gonna make a lot of money off of this and that's a free I, idea I think camelbacks are actually I think there should, it should just be like camelback should be okay to wear at the at like your office desk situation you don't want to actually have to pick up a water bottle you just want to like suck on a <laughs> like your shoulder and I just thought of a, a tagline for them life is an extreme sport <laughs> There you go. Well, what's what's your favorite product that you guys have invented? We've had the opportunity to work on a lot of great products, but we're launching our own product. It's called Canopy. It's and that's the humidifier, right? That's a humidifier. Do I get to plug it for a hot sec? Since we're yeah. talking about water, from a 
engineering standpoint, yeah, I, I think it's actually really interesting because I never thought about humidifiers before. And you guys had pointed out that there's issues with or there's like drawbacks of the current way that we're humidifying our apartments. What's going on? Can you just yeah, explain, so- please? Humidifiers are a weird space. It's broken up into humidifiers for babies that look like elephants and water droplets, or it's humidifiers for sick people who have seasonal dryness and things like that. Humidifiers are really, really difficult to clean. They are a bucket of water that never gets dry. And as a result, you get mold inside the system. You get mold that gets blown into your air we heard about some people who hired their nanny and in their nanny's contract, they have to clean out the baby's humidifier every week. It's just like, and I mean, no one does that except for my girlfriend who cleans her humidifier with vinegar and a Q-tip every week. I had no idea until I started dating her. I was like, okay, this is insane. And so we decided to build a humidifier around making it really easy to use, super, super easy to clean, and designing it for people who traditionally didn't use humidifiers. What we found is you lose a ton of water while you sleep, and you lose a ton more water in very, very dry environments. So if you bring your uh, relative humidity up in your apartment or in your sleeping area up between 40 and 60%, what ends up happening is you lose about half the water you would normally in something closer to about a 20% relative humidity environment. I like to say it's like drinking a cup of water while you sleep. And as a result, you wake up with your skin feeling better, your hair feeling better. And we've designed a product specifically for that, meant to be used in sleeping environments, so smaller rooms. It's meant to sit on on your nightstand. Is it self-cleaning? So we came up with this idea that things mold because they're wet. Humidifiers traditionally cannot get dry. They're designed around, if you've ever had a, uh, a, a humidifier that blows a little smoke out, the steam, it looks super cool. The downside is that's actually small particles of water and small particles of dust. And you're blowing all this stuff into your air that you end up inhaling or you end up, it ends up getting sucked into your expensive molecule filter. What we did is we designed something that was a, a wick. And so it evaporates off of that. So you don't see any mist or smoke. And what we can do, unlike those misty type filters, those things can't get dry. If they get dry, they break. So if you finish your water tank with those, you end up with a small layer of water at the bottom and that protects that. um, It's an ultrasonic element that makes that, that mist. So what we did is we used a paper wick and we're blowing air across that. And as a result, you can make it completely dry. And so we added some sensors and we've added some UV light. So it kills the bacteria that's within the system. So any bacteria mold that's in inside your water gets completely killed before it enters the wick. And then as you use the product, if you leave for the weekend, the unit will actually turn itself back on and dry it, itself out. So you're not sitting with a puddle of water in a soaking wick that's just going to mold in a few days. If anyone is interested in learning more about Doris Dev or possibly working with you, what's the how do we how do we make that happen? You can find us at doris.dev. Um, find us on Instagram as well. We love working with people who have a really really strong brand vision. We build brand driven products, and we're always interested in building something that's fun and weird. Mm-hmm. 
So Nick, since we already did product reviews at the top of the show, what do you say we end on a nice little bit of arts and culture? I think that sounds good. Nick, what have you been consuming? I mean, aside from the presidential debate, I've really been trying to not watch cable news, which for me is CNN because it's depressing. And instead, I've been trying to get into more sort of like, like fant- oh, it's fantastical to me, but more like period shows. So I've, I've just started The Great, which is with Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt. And it's on Hulu, and I am really enjoying it. The production value is incredible. And Elle Fanning is a cutie pie. What's it about? It's actually from the writer of The Favorite, which the Emma, which Emma is in that one? Emma Stone. Emma Stone. It's, uh, it's from the same writer as, as The Favorite with Emma Stone. And it's loosely based on the rise of Catherine the Great, who is the leader of Russia for a time. It's like, it's kind of a comedy, but it's obviously in period in Russia. And like, it's just like escapism. It's like candy. Um, It is, it's like an antidote to CNN, which like, even at this point, like the CNN anchors are like cursing and screaming and rolling their eyes. It's like, you can't watch it, but you can watch the great. True. And also the thing about the great is that it has an 88% uh, rotten tomato score, which to me for a TV show is pretty good. Pretty good. I feel like TV shows in general are really stepping it up. I think a lot about that, actually, the transition from feature films to series format and how they decide. Like I suffered through the Irishman, a three hour long movie. It's like they couldn't, they couldn't choose. You know? I mean, it would have been a better TV show. If it's going to be three hours, make it a mini series or something and like release it on HBO. But don't make me sit in a theater or on Netflix or wherever it premiered and watch three hours of old men being like old men. It was the most uninteresting movie from some of my favorite people. I agree, Sorry. actually. Speaking of the favorite, Yorgos Lanthimos, who is the director of that movie, is directing the movie version of one of my favorite books that I read last year that has a lot of uh, synergies with the world today, which is called My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshfeg. It was like one of the like top books for like millennial women <laughs> from 2019. And it's dark. It's depressing. If you want to wallow, I say like, go for it. You hate all the characters. There's no, there's no silver lining in the story. This sounds um, miserable. I know. I know. It's hard to explain why you should spend any of your waking hours reading it, but... um, I need uplifting, happy things that make me forget about everything else. I mean, try ketamine. That's why (laughs) move to Ann Arbor, get some (laughs) magic mushrooms. I have kind of a um, moment of zen if we can borrow something from The Daily Show. What is it? You know how it's fashion week? Yeah. I DM'd you this, but you didn't. Re- you actually didn't even open it. What's going on, Nick? Is there something wrong? Am I, are you I'm mad depressed. at me? <laughs> but you always open my DMs. So Fashion Week is happening. It's kind of weird to see all these brands try to deal with the pandemic, trying to have fashion shows during the pandemic. And you sent me the Balmain show where they had like flat screen TVs set up. Oh God. As if like in, they had, they had like a runway with an audience and like chairs set up, except on the chairs were just TVs with like influencers projected onto them. Yeah. 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 So you had that, but then my kind of <laughs> my favorite photo from 
people trying to do fashion week was one that the guy from purple magazine Olivier Zom posted of Jurgen Teller just sitting in an empty room and it just looks like nobody told him that the show was canceled. <laughs> like, like poor Jurgen Teller is just sitting there on his phone in an empty room, what should be like an otherwise like bustling fashion show scene. I don't know. I just think it's kind of funny. Don't you think Jurgen Teller is kind of a funny like fashion character? Totally. I went to a book signing of his once and he was wearing umbr- like green umbros really short with no underwear underneath. I was like, interesting choice for a book signing. I mean, that's a European man in a nutshell. Oof. No, thank you. Check, please. I have one more thing to add to arts and culture, and this is not something that I've watched or seen or done, but rather something that is coming up. And I full disclosure, have zero affiliation with any of the people involved. But it is a fundraiser that is being produced and will star the comedian John Early. If you know him, he famously married Amy Schumer and her husband. He was like the, uh, I want to say surrogate because I have babies on the brain, but he was the officiant for Amy Schumer and Chris Fisher's wedding. But he also stars on the the TV show Search Party. He's basically been like a, a kind of like, a side character in everything funny that you've seen. John early actually organized a fundraiser for Bradshaw for us Senate, who is Marquita Bradshaw. She is campaigning for the U S Senate in Tennessee and uh, John early's from Tennessee and organized a virtual comedy fundraiser starring People like Kate Berlant, Connie Britton, Naomi Ekperigan, Sarah Silverman, Bowen Yang. But if you like John Early in any of his in any of his characters, and his sense of humor is really incredible, I recommend getting a ticket. You can pay as little as ten dollars for a ticket. You can pay as much as a thousand dollars and be a host of the event. But it's good to support Democrats obviously for the U.S. Senate, and Marquita Bradshaw is a great one to support. So you can check out his Instagram, which is Beyonce, B-E-J-O-H-N-C-E, like Beyonce, but Beyonce. And his link in bio has the, uh, the benefit information. I'll have to check that out. Thanks, Nick. Well, I think that that's all that we have for the world this week. It is. So that's it for this week's episode of Eyewitness Beauty. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Eyewitness Beauty, or you can write to us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abronowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Prezamp. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode, so we will talk to you then. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated.